Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, a huge thank you to my new supporters on Patreon this week. That's Christine Purvis and Gemma Quinlan. I really value your support and hope you enjoy the 11 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. If you'd like to support the show, please find us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. I remember a few years ago being shocked when a friend of mine confessed over a few beers that the main reason he married his wife was because she was rich. Although I was surprised at the time, they still seemed to be living happily and who are we to question why anyone else decides to get married? If it works for them, great. Marrying for love, or what you think is love, isn't exactly a fairy tale for most people, is it? And in reality, marrying for money has been happening since the beginning of time although it's traditionally the woman who has married a rich, older man. More recently, there are, how should I say, less formal arrangements available, with internet sites facilitating the clear demand for this by providing opportunities for younger, more beautiful people to hitch up with older, less beautiful, but more wealthy people. Hey, whatever works for you is good for me. But in today's story from October 2012, we look at how the money involved in this sort of arrangement can lead to greed and the terrible behaviours which can often be associated with such greed. But firstly, I'm delighted that today's podcast is sponsored by ShipStation. If you sell online, getting your orders out of the door quickly can be tough, which is why I recommend ShipStation. It's the fast and easy way to manage and dispatch your orders all from one place. You can use ShipStation to compare rates from top careers, including Royal Mail, FedEx, DHL and UPS. So it's no wonder that ShipStation is increasingly a popular choice for online sellers across the UK. ShipStation makes it easy to batch and print labels so you can get the orders out quickly and keep your customers happy. Now you can try ShipStation completely free of charge for 30 days plus get a special bonus when you use the promotion code UKTRUECRIME. To get this special promotion, just head to shipstation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in UK True Crime. That's shipstation.com, then enter promotion code UK True Crime. Shipstation.com, support this podcast and make ship happen. This episode is also sponsored by Harry's. Unfortunately, this is the final sponsorship from this excellent company for a while. So if you've been thinking of trialing Harry's, This is the time to do it, as a good response may persuade them to sponsor more episodes of this podcast. Get your trial set today for just £3.95 by going to harrys.com slash truecrime. I use their products, especially as it's so good for my sensitive skin. It really is. So I can personally recommend them to you. Also, I love the fact it's delivered to my door to save me from the nightmare that is the supermarket. So head off to harrys.com slash truecrime today to have your £11.50 set delivered to your door for just £3.95. Get a great shave and support this podcast. If you're not happy with the products, just return them for a full refund. So what have you got to lose? That's harrys.com slash truecrime. When our story begins in October 2012, the UK charts were topped by Swedish house mafia with Don't You Worry Child. 
Keeping the awful Skyfall by Adele from the number one spot. In the US, it was One More Night by Maroon 5. This was the month that Hurricane Sandy made landfall in New Jersey, resulting in 110 deaths and $50 billion worth of damage, forcing the New York Stock Exchange to close. On a much smaller scale in the UK, this was the month that heavy rain in the southwest of England caused flash flooding in the coastal village of Cloverley, Devon, damaging homes and pulling up cobbles in the street. Remember that? Today's podcast takes us to Newcastle in the northeast of England, a city universally loved across the UK. Well, except for those in nearby Sunderland, maybe. And sorry to perpetuate the stereotype, but when I'm in Newcastle, it's always a place where none of the locals wear a jumper or coat, however cold. For someone in the south like me, it's pretty hard to understand, but it's always a great night out with lots of friendly people. In 2012 in Newcastle lived Peter McMahon. He'd lived there all his life, and he was now in his mid-sixties. Fit and healthy, the ex-civil servant told his many friends that he'd been unlucky in love, having been married and divorced twice. He had two adult children, one living in London and one in New Zealand, and he spoke to them both regularly. He liked to drink with his pals, and one of his local pubs was the Metropolitan Bar, where one day in 2010, he got talking to a striking lady almost 25 years younger than him. Her name was Sharon Swinhoe, and very quickly, the two became an item and were involved in a passionate relationship. The relationship worried his many friends. He feared that the younger woman was taking advantage of his comfortable financial position and was just using him for his money. And whatever Sharon's motives, their relationship certainly did put a dent in Peter's previously healthy bank balance. And by March 2012, Peter had gone from living comfortably on his two pensions and having savings to being many thousands of pounds in debt. He even poured his heart out to a bank clerk on one occasion, telling her how a woman had bled him dry. And this is the sort of man that Peter was, very open, friendly, transparent and easy to talk with. And an ex-civil servant too, doesn't sound much like my interactions with the joyless jobworths at HMRC. But Peter was obsessed with his younger lover, and he confided in friends about their active and adventurous sex life, and how she made him feel truly alive. One friend told how she had a huge hold over him, All he wanted was a bit of care and a bit of happiness. We told him it was never going to happen with her. We tried to warn him, but he couldn't see that. He was just so besotted with her. I think he just wanted to settle down and have a home life. He was just the nicest man in the world. And what he was looking for, and what she was looking for, seemed to us to be complete opposites. And Sharon was certainly showing no signs of wanting to settle down. She always wanted to be out and about around the city at Peter's expense. Two brothers that Peter used to drink with and became very good friends with, Gary and Tony, were equally dubious about this relationship with a woman so much younger, saying, We had never met Sharon, but when we found out her age, it was hard to believe a woman that age was interested in a man of his age. I think it was just the fact she was so much younger that attracted Peter. Gary said, He used to talk about her a lot, and he talked a lot about their sex life. He was really, really into her. I think he felt all his Christmases had come at once. 
It was a strange relationship though. They were on and off all the time. She would never come to the bar with him, but the minute she called or texted, he would be away and we wouldn't see him for weeks. He was just at her beck and call. Gary and Tony became increasingly concerned about Peter's financial position, especially when he told them just how much money he was spending on her, even shelling out around £1,200 on an engagement ring for her. Others shared this concern. Ellen Dennith was the landlady of another pub frequented by Peter, and she saw Sharon as a powerful influence in his life who would dominate him when it suited her. But Peter told her that he adored Sharon, despite the fact that at one time she tried to attack him with a knife. And it wasn't just Sharon. A friend of hers called Joseph Collins, more of him later, once came into her pub armed with a machete and pull cue, looking to attack Peter. As an experienced landlady, Ellen listened to what was happening, but couldn't get too involved with the various woes her customers shared with her. She said, I didn't think much of Sharon, and I didn't approve of their relationship. I thought she was taking advantage of him. But Peter adored her despite my warnings. She was a powerful influence in his life, tending to dominate everything around Peter. Although Peter listened to all the warnings, they had no impact on him. He felt that his friends were probably a little bit jealous, and anyway, he was having such fun, there was no way he was going to end the relationship. As I said before, the relationship was a passionate one, and the couple had furious arguments. But it appeared that this developed into violence, and this was instigated by Sharon. Police had logged an incident of domestic violence after Peter was found with scratches on his face, following an altercation with Sharon after officers were called when their pair had been seen rowing in Newcastle city centre in 2011. Peter refused to tell police how he came to suffer the injuries, but officers just logged the incident as domestic abuse. Of course, what we could never know is the full story, and whether it was one-sided or not. And then in March there was a serious incident. Sharon went to the police, accusing Peter of tying her up and raping her at his flat. Peter absolutely denied these allegations. Although Peter was never charged, he was distraught about this and the couple split up. Gary explained how his friend Peter was devastated by these claims, by someone he loved and he believed loved him, saying he was really, really down for months. He was at such a low ebb and couldn't pick himself up. He said he couldn't believe that she had done it. We didn't believe it. We knew the type of man he was and he just didn't have it in him to do something like that. Unbeknown to his friends, Peter even tried to take his own life during this dark period, overdosing on pills washed down with alcohol. With this alleged rape, as always, it's impossible for us to know what happened and just more widely what was happening in their relationship and what did or didn't happen and who was responsible but a clear picture was developing to Peter's friends, which is that this relationship was doing him no good and he needed to stay away from Sharon. Already the relationship was declining and it seemed that there was no way back. Months later, police told Peter he would not be charged over the rape allegation and Gary said his friend was delighted when Sharon contacted him again looking to rekindle their relationship. When we found out he was going back to her, we just said, Peter, you're mad. But he just didn't want to know. 
Tony even said, Peter, you're going to end up in a box. On the 18th of October 2012, Tony was having a drink with Peter and he could sense Peter's growing excitement. Asked why that was, he told him that he was going to Sharon's flat later that evening. She had contacted him out of the blue and he was sure this was the opportunity to rekindle their relationship. He was on cloud nine, he just couldn't wait to see her again. He hoped they could put all the bad feeling around the rape allegation behind them and move on together as a couple. That evening, with the prospect of meeting up with Sharon again and reconciling their relationship, he called for a taxi to collect him from his address and it took him to where she lived. He couldn't contain his sheer anticipation of what the evening and the future could hold in store. He told the taxi driver he was on his way to see an ex-girlfriend who was significantly younger than him. He was dressed very smartly and was just so looking forward to seeing his girlfriend again. So the driver took him to the Walker area of Newcastle where Sharon lived and dropped him off. Peter's friends didn't see him for a while after that, but they weren't worried. Peter's pal Gary explained, It wasn't unusual for Peter to disappear when he was with Sharon. In the past, when we tried to get in touch with him when he was with her, she would get abusive and take the phone off him. So we just assumed that this was happening again. His flatmate found it a little strange that Peter had left behind all of his clothes and his personal possessions and didn't tell him that he was leaving. But again, he was used to Peter spending extended, intense time with Sharon. Over six weeks later, on the 1st of December 2012, Sharon Swinho dialed 999 but hung up before she could give details of why she was calling. Alarmed in case it was an emergency and she was being harmed, police turned up at her home. When they asked her why she had called 999, she told them that Joseph Collins was harassing her. Remember, the same Joseph Collins who we heard earlier had gone looking for Peter in a pub armed with a machete. To the astonishment of the police officers, she then went on to say that there was a smell coming from Collins's flat. Moreover, she hadn't seen Peter McMahon for weeks. She believed that Collins had killed him and stored him in his freezer at his flat. When officers rushed to his home, Collins greeted them calmly and said, it's about Peter in the freezer, and pointed to his bedroom. As the officers entered, they had a deepening sense of foreboding, as there were electric fans and air fresheners wherever they looked. When they opened the freezer, to their horror, they found the mutilated body of Peter McMahon. Peter had died from heart failure, triggered by injuries he had received between late October and early November 2012. His injuries included a fractured nose, facial bruising, bruising to the scrotum and the extremely unpleasant gouging injuries to his eyes. Police suspected that Sharon, with a feeling of festering hate for Peter following the alleged rape in March, subjected him to a sustained attack in which she gouged Peter's eyes with her fingernails, causing a fatal cardiac arrhythmia. They were unsure for how long Peter had been tortured, but it was very clear that he'd had a horrible end to his life. As police probed further into the life of Sharon Swinhoe, they found a woman who attracted mainly older men who she used to her advantage. Collins was another one of those who had enjoyed a brief sexual relationship with Swinhoe a decade earlier. Since that time, 
his whole world had orbited around Swinho, being on hand to help her with anything she wanted to do, any errands she wanted him to run, just hoping that it would lead to a long-term relationship. Police believed that Sharon Swinho had not murdered Peter Ballone. She'd been helped by Joseph Collins. They thought that she and Collins had killed him at her home before mutilating his body and hiding it in a dog kennel outside. With the help of yet another of Swinho's ex-lovers, the rather elderly Ronald Douglas, the corpse was then transported in the suitcase to Collins's flat, where it was hidden in the freezer until it was discovered almost two months later. The trio attempted to evade justice by building a picture that Peter wasn't dead. They kept ordering and collecting his repeat prescription from his local chemist. And on November the 15th, Swinho and Collins broke into his flat and bagged up his belongings to give the impression he had moved out. Police believed that the main motive for murder had been financial and Swinho and Collins began to further deplete his bank account once they had killed him, taking out up to £500 a time and happily using his credit card to fund their lifestyle. When police went to Swinho's flat, they found a number of wigs and hair pieces, which they believed she'd used as disguises. On November the 17th, Swinho, dressed in one of her wigs, had called a taxi and carried a suitcase to the waiting car. The taxi driver noted the weight of the suitcase as he helped her place it in the boot, and the pickup stayed in his mind as he wondered just what could be quite so heavy. A day later, Peter's son from New Zealand rang to tell his dad that he was a grandfather. There was no reply when he called, and when he rang a few days later, Swinho told him his dad was asleep, which Peter's son thought was a bit odd as it was only early evening. When Peter's friends would call his phone, Swinho would make excuses, telling one friend that she and Peter were getting married and he no longer wanted to see his old friends. On November the 28th, Douglas was spotted on CCTV with Swinho and Collins dragging a suitcase, presumably containing Peter's body, to Collins's home. The CCTV footage shows the three nonchalantly chatting, seemingly without a care in the world, in the lift. Douglas is dragging behind him what is very obviously a heavy case. Collins holds the door open for the other two. There is no question that these three are not acting together. The next day, Collins went to a second-hand shop and bought a chest freezer for £60 and said his friend was coming over with some more money. Douglas arrived shortly after with extra cash and purchased a freezer. And this freezer was to be the place they stored Peter. CCTV showed the freezer was delivered to Collins's flat, although the two men wouldn't let the delivery staff into the flat, insisting the freezer was left on the landing. Cleaners and management in Collins's building began to complain of a stench in the days that followed, but he blamed it on a blocked toilet. How often have we heard that, the smell of the dead body? Douglas later told police that Swinhoe called him on November the 20th and said she had a case for him to take to Collins's flat. Douglas says it was only when they were on their way in the car that he was told exactly what was in the case. Peter McMahon's blood and DNA were later discovered on the suitcase, so it's clear that it was his body being transported. Although the murder is bad enough, I think here there's something incredibly disturbing about the lack of respect shown for the body following the crime. 
All three were subsequently arrested but denied the murder. Collins and Douglas admitted conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. When on remand, Swinhoe spoke to her prison mentor and welfare representative Anne Huxley. Remember her? She was serving 20 years for hiring two hitmen in Liverpool to kill her partner Gerard Gilbert for an insurance payout. She told police about her chats with Swinhoe. She said she used to go out with him and he had raped her and she finished with him. I asked if he had raped her why she had got back with him again and she said they decided they should make a go of it. In one breath she told me she hated him and in the next breath she said she was getting back with him. She said she wanted to do all sorts of nasty things to him. She was just ranting most of the time. Huxley said that Swinhoe admitted having stolen money from a man who lived in the flat above her and allegedly was angry because he died before she could get the rest. And she said Swinhoe also admitted that she and her co-accused Ronald Douglas had looked for somewhere to hide Peter's body. Huxley said, She said her and Ronnie had found a shopping area and there was a grass verge where they were thinking of dumping the body. I said if she would no involvement, why was she doing that? She just said it was somewhere local and they looked behind the shopping area for a place to get rid of the body. She said the other two were in prison. Then a few days later, she told me she was really upset because Ronnie had got bail and she couldn't understand why he had bail. She said Ronnie was an instrumental part of it, as they were. Huxley said that Swinhoe had told her, I didn't do this, it was not me, it was all of them. But in the same conversation, she said, they have as much to do with it as me. Very strange ranting there from Swinhoe. She must have known that would have got back to police. And why had Swinhoe called the police on the 1st of December? The police suspected it was as she thought that she could get away with murder and Collins, who had shown he would do whatever she asked, would also take the blame for the killing. She still hadn't given up hope of this happening, even on the way to court for the trial, when she was overheard telling Collins that if he just came clean, this would all be over for the three of them. But by this time the spell was broken and Collins must now have been able to see very clearly how he'd been manipulated, and it was likely to cost him his freedom for a very long time. The trial was held at Newcastle Crown Court, with all three denying murder during a six-week trial. Peter's 36-year-old son collapsed in the public gallery while hearing evidence about his father's injuries. After emergency treatment, he chose not to come back to court for the rest of the case, but his wife sat through each day of the hearing, travelling from their London home every week. And the gruesome details that were heard in court meant that the judge told the jury that after what they'd been through, they would never need to serve as a jury member again. The jury found Swinhoe and Collins guilty of murder and Douglas of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Swinhoe was jailed for a minimum of 25 years, Collins for a minimum of 20 years and Douglas to four years in jail. Jailing Swinhoe, Mr Justice Globe said that she appeared to show no remorse for the killing, adding, You appear to care more about the rats you kept as pets than the man who loved you and bought you an expensive engagement ring. Peter McMahon was a well-liked, respected, generous, mature man living comfortably on his two pensions in the Newcastle area. In common with the two men sitting alongside you, Sharon Swinhoe, his downfall was that he fell victim to your charm that has attracted men to you like magnets. 
Ultimately, he fell victim to your much more sinister, controlling and violent personality. And more than £2,600 found in her flat after the murder must be repaid to the family, the judge ordered. Speaking after the verdicts were delivered, Stephen McMahon's wife Natasha said, It's a relief. I didn't know what to expect really, but it's the best it could have been for the family. It's the best we could have hoped for in relation to Douglas too. It's just been horrendous, like a nightmare, a living nightmare. Now I think we will just try to rebuild our lives. Stephen said, If I'm honest, the verdicts are more than what I was hoping for. I never really wanted to get my hopes up. In an official statement, the family said, Peter will be greatly missed by his family and friends. It's particularly tragic that he not only had his life taken from him, but these people showed utter disrespect for it afterwards. He was also denied the chance to learn he'd become a grandfather, which he'd always dearly wanted. We still can't believe that anybody could be so cruel, calculated and cold-hearted against our dad. Rest in peace, Dad. After the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Paul Young said, Peter McMahon was a decent, hard-working man who was looking forward to becoming a grandfather. Swinhoe and Collins targeted him for financial gain, preying on his generosity and then plundering his bank accounts after his death. Mr McMahon believed they were his friends, but they brutally murdered him and then conspired with Ronald Douglas to cover up their crime by hiding the body and denying responsibility. After the murder, Swinhoe and Collins showed not a scrap of remorse. Their every action from that point was a calculated attempt to evade justice, including their inhumane treatment of Mr McMahon's remains and the web of lies they told both to Peter's family and to police. Ultimately, the only thing they've achieved through their despicable actions is to prolong the suffering of Peter's family and friends. I am pleased with the sentences passed today, and I'd hope they give some measure of comfort to those who knew Peter McMahon, and must be a very difficult time for them. Not long after the trial, on Peter's 67th birthday, Friends and staff he knew at the Villa Victoria pub and the Metropolitan Bar, where he'd met Sharon, spent time remembering him. Kerry Dickerson said, He was a really quiet but really friendly man. He came for a drink every Sunday. It was just such a shock when we found out what had happened to him. Another close friend said, He was a great fella. I knew him for about ten years. We went all over together and he used to lodge with me. He'd been planning to move to Spain but that fell through and he ended up staying at mine. He was a lovely bloke. So what do you make of what we've heard today? The torture and murder of Peter McMahon after being lured to his lover's flat is just an awful story. I don't think we can even begin to imagine the pain, suffering and torment he must have gone through in his last moments. How many times on this podcast have we seen individuals murdered by those people they love and trust the most? And it's going to happen again today, isn't it? And tomorrow, and every other day this week. So let's go back to where we started by looking at the so-called sugar daddy relationship. Sure, it works for many, but the very nature of this uneven relationship leads to all sorts of dangers. Money and sex, and as I said, an unequal relationship with different motivations it's fraught with danger. And what of Swinhoe now as she languishes in her prison cell? I don't think many will have sympathy for her, do you? And as for her accomplices, well, 
It's easy to say they should have known better and what were they thinking, but they certainly won't be the last to fall under a similar spell. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join our Facebook group to discuss all aspects of UK true crime and please support the show at patreon.com slash UK true crime where you can listen to 11 full-length episodes and find other exclusive content for under £3 a month. Bargain or what? Please do support my sponsors for this show, that's ShipStation, by going to shipstation.com and entering the promotion code UKTrueCrime and Harry's at harrys.com slash truecrime as their support helps me carry on producing this weekly podcast. Finally, a quick recommendation for you. If, like me, you are interested in UK politics, take a listen to For the Many by Ian Dale and Jackie Smith. I think it's a remarkably good, honest and even fun podcast. So that's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio for now and remember, stay classy.